You're listening to the Changing Lives Podcast, where we talk with health professionals, industry experts, and everyday heroes, changing lives on the front lines through emergency healthcare. I'm your host, Ben Cleaver. Well, Ricky Smythe, thanks so much for your time today. I'm so excited to have you in today. Thank you. Pleasure. It's nice to be here, Ben. What we like to do with Changing Lives podcast is we're really trying to give people uh, that are starting out in on their path to a career in paramedics or in the emergency services, yeah. that real insight, the real world insight from real world people mm. and yourself um, is probably about the best candidate I could think of. Thank you. Mate, That's very kind. You've, um, you've been a, over 30 years in the service as a paramedic. Uh, we're going to, and you're now over 20 years as a critical care paramedic. Mm-hmm. I want to unwrap that, <laughs> learn about that role. Sure. And also your journey into that role as well, mm. um, because that started, as I understand, from 15 years of age going into the Royal uh, Australian Navy. Yes, it did. That's uh, right. So I want to hear about that journey, mate. But yeah. um, you've had a, quite a, a varied career. Uh, you've been a single responder paramedic. Uh, interesting role, various station officer in charge roles, um, and again, medic in the Royal Australian Navy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you also, you're a university lecturer and, and sessional tutor as well. Is that right? Yeah, I've done some of that too, a bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, uh, we sent out a form for you to fill out and, um, and before we have a guest on the show. And um, after reading your responses, I was... I was inspired, mate. I was really inspired. <laughs> you're very kind, Ben. Thank um, you. Some of your accomplishments that you listed personally, there's probably many more, but you're a humble man, um, include being a Queensland, the Queensland Paramedic of the Year mm. in 2001. That was like yesterday. Right? Yeah, 9-11. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. It was the day after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, being a peer support officer for, for now for 20 years, mm-hmm. which is as I would understand it, to be a, a pretty a pretty important role. No, it's a great role. Yeah, so I want to unpack that and mm-hmm. talk about that and what that uh, entails. Um, some of your, your accomplishments too are, are sort of off-duty ones, mm-hmm. like a s- successful um, off-duty breach delivery, um, the resuscitation of your neighbour's twins mm-hmm. with your wife. Yes. And speaking of your wife. Yes, Another great accomplishment, <laughs> in fact, probably up there, is 38 years of yeah, marriage. that's right. Raising a family, despite your career in emergency services, shift work, all of that stuff, mm. and uh, and at the Royal Australian Navy as well, you know, out of the home. I, I don't know how you do it, but I'd love to maybe get some <laughs> tips also for those Give listening. it a crack. Yeah. Mate, so where did it all, where did it all start? For you, um, so you know, grew up in Melbourne, Ben, and um, a friend came to me uh, in year ten and said that they were joining the navy, and I said, "Crack an idea." I wasn't really enjoying school that much, uh, not very academic, and so um, I ended up going along and doing the recruitment process. Uh, he didn't; he <laughs> chose not to after recruiting me himself, and uh, entered the you know, navy at uh, fifteen. Wow. And uh, first time away over to WA as as part of um, their junior recruit sort of um, program, which was kind of like another nine months of um, schooling. But you had to sort of choose some path in the Navy that you might want to choose, yeah? Mm. And um, 
for some great reason, I chose you know the medical branch to go into rather than gunnery um, um, because I guess it spoke to me that after I was finished in the Navy, it, it'd be something that I could explore afterwards. Um, came from a very caring, uh, generous uh, family who put other people's needs first. So the medical role you know, fit quite well for me. Mm. So, yeah, so way back in 1979 as a 15-year-old. Well, we could do the calculations now. <laughs> so it was great. It was a really good good time. Uh, Navy was wonderful. Uh, it was all peacetime service. And so, um, you know, medical sailors were basically looking after a crew of around about, uh, depending on what ship, uh, 200 to 300 people. And there was yourself and an offsider that was basically looking after their care. Um, being peacetime, most of the stuff you cared about or looked after was uh, fights, sporting injuries, and sexually transmitted diseases from people right, coming yeah, from overseas. Right, right. So, um, yeah, there was not a lot of uh, acuity. Um, and having said that too, Ben, like um, armed forces are those places that if you are, you know, suffering any sort of chronic disease issue or uh, medical problem, you tend not to be able to get through that last selection process. So we weren't dealing with things that we would normally see with ambulance, which is asthma, diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, you know, those sorts of mm. things. So you're dealing with fit, healthy people that probably drink a little bit too much and, <laughs> and play up a little bit too much. Mm. Yeah. What was it like starting out in that career? You said there wasn't this, you know, initially this used motivation that I want to be working in the emergency services, but it seemed like the right um, channel to take. Yes. And yeah, then yeah. there was obviously something that really grabbed you about this sort of work yeah I think I think um, the ability to help people you know um, and even though you're dealing with fit healthy people probably a little bit about you know the the fly in fly out minor stuff which is where you know you're generally dealing with healthy people but um, being away from home is a challenge um, not necessarily physically because all your net your needs are met physically but emotionally and psychologically and to some degree spiritually so mm. Um, people are leaving their you know, children and families and wives for extended periods of time. And so, you know, you're part medic, you're part counsellor, you're part, you know, peer supporter, you're yeah. part lifeline, you know, a whole range of things. Um, and as I sort of alluded to, on a ship of 300, there's only two medical people. And so you, you tend to become quite well known and popular early in the piece as opposed to maybe, you know, 100 engineers that might be on the ship or those sorts of things. There's there's more anonymity with that sort of role. So, yeah, you're front and centre. Yeah, and that really gave you, you know, you really felt in, inspired. Where did it go after that? Because you obviously came out of there and then decided to uh, head towards a, a career in the in the service. What, yeah, well, what think, happened after that? Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, like I throw my, my friend under the bus saying that he, he sort of recruited me for the Navy and didn't join up himself. I think I'd always been uh, attracted to some sort of uniform work, whether that would be defence force or police or ambulance or, you know, something along those sorts of lines. Um, so it's not uncommon that, that I've fallen into that role uh, for a period. Um, you know, and it's been a great uh, journey of opportunities and, and you know, uh, 90 degree turns at different points, I suppose. Um, but the whole way through, regardless of what I've done, I've always been keen to be of use, to be helpful, to be generous and, and do my best to make the world a bit of a better place. Um, so that's carried through no matter what role mm. we've done, you know. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I alluded to some of your some of what you've done in your career um, just at the start, but before we get into the critical care paramedic role yeah. and what that entails, can you just give us a, a brief summary of, of where it's you know from where we, we've started to, to now as your critical yeah. care paramedic? So so um, before I came to Queensland, which is where my mum had moved to from Melbourne, whilst during my ten year career with the um, Navy. Mm. Um, I, I tried to sort of join the Victorian Ambulance because we had some family connections that had been there. Tried to also join uh, police. Um, both were a negative because I'm only 170 centimetres tall. And back in the day, you know, um, uh, I think 170 was the bare minimum. So I got a, got a note of those sorts of things. Um, came up to Queensland uh, post-Navy, so discharged from Navy. Um did uh, concreting, so labouring for about six months or so. Loved it. Loved the idea of um, you know seeing what you've done that day. Uh, however, the downside of it was there aren't a lot of older concreters, and so I knew that you know as much as I loved seeing a house pad or a footpath or a driveway, mm. it's not something that was going to be a career for me. Mm. Um, and I approached the in in the day it was the Queensland Amherst Transport Brigade. Um, ran a program called the Honorary System where you could um, put your credentials forward and then volunteer to uh, come along as a sort of like a third person on a, on a truck um, and um, see what the airman service was about. Right. So it was a very loose um, uh, opportunity that was there. Uh, and I'd come in, you know, once a fortnight or once a month to do a shift. Uh, and the beauty of it was the two things was that, no, number one, it gave me a chance to sort of see what the job was and to see whether it fitted with what I could do or thought I could do. Number two was they got to see you know, me as well and mm. decide whether it was someone they might want to employ or not want to employ. Mm. So there were some benefits there, but I think because the program was quite uh, loose in the way that they ran it, um, you know, there, there were some people there who'd been doing the honorary position for a couple of years and never uh, achieved a job. Okay. Um, so I think it was only like about three months after uh, doing that program that I got a position, which was amazing. Mm. Yeah. And wow. frightening. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I turned up, um, took my earring out of my ear, my, my, my bling earring after coming out of the Navy and being a rebel, uh, uh, right, yeah. concerned that the boss wouldn't like it. And the chap that came out that was in charge of um, QATB Southport had a big bling earring himself. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. So it was okay. a good introduction. So you went on home and put the earring back in? Yeah, put it back in. It's all okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so now you've made your way through the service right mm. up to, you know, being in that critical care role. Um, how, how did that all take place? Yeah, it's um, – look, sometimes I think, Ben, you arrive at the right time, you know, um, even if you're not sure it is the right time. Mm. Um so the opportunity to join the QATB was amazing. Um, back then, they were sort of like a single uh, response car mostly, and so there weren't always two people in the car. And, and uh, to become a, an ambulance officer, um, you needed an advanced first aid certificate, um, be of reasonable character, mm. and be able to drive a car. So that so wow. so the um, employment status was quite uh, was a lot less than it is now. Mm. You know. Um, and a lot of the characters that came to uh, ambulance back then were uh, tradespeople. 
So you had a lot of electricians, uh, plumbers, carpenters that that realised that their physical attributes were on the decline, mm. or they saw the opportunity to become an ambulance officer and took it. Um, so it's, pro- it's quite rudimentary. Um, back in what was it, nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine. Um, you know, you need to understand that the places like um, New South Wales Ambulance and the Victorian Ambulance or Metropolitan Ambulance Service, they've been running critical care programs for like 20 or 30 years. Right. So Queensland um, wasn't seen to be the height of of uh, ambulance services around Australia. Um, so, you know, initially we had maybe three or four drugs um, there was no pass-fail for attendance at courses and those sorts of things. Wow. Um, you bought your own um, fishing tackle box to stock with um, stock and uh, <laughs> it's very much a learn-by experience, you know, routine. No mentoring, no um, no real uh, wow. uh, supervision, stuff like that. Wow. So it was learning on the job. Yeah, if you can't handle a fire, you're, you're out. Yeah. So, But, you know, um, thankfully, yeah, single swim. I kept on swimming, so that was good. Um, the the service so the QAT Southport were their own independent employer, so they were like um, seventy nine eighty nine different employers within Queensland, all under the umbrella of the QATB, which was the central hiring sort of place. Okay. But the local boss could hire whoever he wanted the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, um, and so they decided to make it a one service uh, process that happened with a change of government. So it changed from being a you know, the Joe B. Elke Peterson, you know, Liberal mm. or National Party routine to being, um, you know, Labor and, and a one-service uh, routine, at which point funding was, was achieved. When was this around? Uh, it would have been around 1991. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so a lot a lot changed in that, in that yeah. time. A lot of people were worried, a lot of people were fearful, but, you know, the transition was fine. So... Um, then they would have gone down a pl- uh, a, the concept of having a diploma of, of pre-hospital care, mm. which people signed up to. Um, some were fearful, some were keen, you know, some were ready to go. So uh, it was an amazing transition. So it's great to see the service um, change to where we are today because mm. I like to believe that, you know, we would be one of the leaders. Uh, it's not a competition. Everyone's trying to, you know, provide the best care possible. Mm. But uh, there are certain lots of things that we do well and are seen a lot better than we would have been back in 19, you know, 70, what, 89, yeah, 88. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. So, well, so, and it just strikes me now uh, with you, you're operating as uh, in that critical care role. Yes. Um, and you said you weren't any good at school. No, rubbish. <laughs> um, and how have you learnt and grown in your knowledge and, and, and skills over that time to operate now as you do? Yeah, well, I think, I think um, uh, you know, 15, I certainly wasn't academic, more sports um, yeah. related or, or, or focused. Um, you know, the continued education uh, in the Navy and then uh, once I became um, a medic, um, I had the opportunity to specialise as well. So I became like a, they call it um, an environmental medicine unit uh, sailor, so he did occupational health and safety, and um, our boss, who was um, a doctor, yeah. uh, well, we actually had two bosses um, that I experienced during that that time. They were incredibly, uh, you know, generous with um, the way that they would talk of the world and and where we needed to 
how we need to do our report writing and how we need to present ourselves. So I think it's been a constant, you know, upgrading of, of skills and knowledge along the way, mm. Ben. Um, look, I think, uh, I think, you know, for your students, um, the important thing is your desire to want to learn and be a lifelong learner. You know, there's a chap at, at work um, whose son now flies, you know, or was flying F-18s. Um, he's, new, he's now doing the you know, jet strike fighter thing, you know. Mm. But, you know, year 11 and 12, he had a terrible year, left school with you know, rubbish, you know, um, OP or ATAR scores, mm. um, worked in Woolies for a while and then decided, yeah, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. And so I went back to you know, do some TAFE and schooling stuff and that. And here he is, a fighter pilot, and taking selfies of himself in the cockpit of a, you know, an amazing military aircraft. Um, and without that academic foundation. So, you know, there are many pathways to get where you want to go. Yeah. It's just having the drive and endeavor and passion to, to keep at it, you know. I think that's the important thing. So, yeah. Now, yeah. I, I look at... Um, I look at the, you know, people that come through their um, undergraduate degree now, um, or for instance, you know, I have the opportunity of mentoring, you know, graduates, um, CCP interns. Um, they all come from a very academic background, and so they've done, you know, their high school stuff. Um, they've done the sciences. Um, they've done their three-year degree. They then do their masters, you know, or advanced diploma. Mm. They're very clever. Like um, they're a lot more clever than I am at a cellular level and those sorts of things because they have the foundational work. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just lucky that I've been able to do this job for a long time and have a lot of experiential work, as well as having done a lot of reading and and self learning. Yeah. And um, you know, doing doing my own uh, degree as well. You know, to mm -hmm. to keep on learning, I suppose. So yeah. yeah. So I try and keep at the forefront of of things. Yeah. Mm. Now, I want to talk about the, the role in itself, just yeah. if you can detail. And it's important to note that, um, you know, as you currently work as a critical care paramedic in Queensland, you, you're not here representing any organisation, representing yourself. You're yeah. using your own. Um, let's get that. <laughs> <laughs> let's get that. Let's get uh, that elephant off the, off the yeah. room. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. They're my own views. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So what is the critical care paramedic role? Well, it's, it's you know, um, it's morphed from um, – Back when it first kicked off, which which was around about 1995-ish, um, when the program was totally new, um, you were everything. So, so you know, the advanced level paramedic, um, there was quite a large gap between the knowledge base of, a, of an intensive care paramedic and an advanced level paramedic. Yep. The skills were, were um, a lot more for a, an intensive care paramedic. And so you were busy for your you know, 10 to 14-hour shift, right. providing a lot of the cares that the advanced care paramedic now um, does. So so really, where we've come in that, you know, uh, what, 25-year period is that your advanced care paramedic now is basically the old-school intensive care paramedic back from 1995 with uh, just as many of the skills, knowledge, and uh, drugs that we were carrying back in the day. Um with a couple of minor changes. So the roles evolved. And, and back in 95, you were kind of like a proceduralist. So you were basically driving from job to job to job, even just providing you know, narcotic pain relief to um, patients, right. which the advanced care paramedic didn't have. So um, it was um, 
a real experience to to have been at the forefront of those sorts of um, moments to now where a CCP is more seen as being um, a mentor, a clinical leader, uh, a teacher. Uh, the role's really transformed a lot. So um, that's meant that some, you know, intensive care or CCPs have to think about their, where their role lies because they're not racing around anymore like they used to do. Um, there is still, there's still a single officer response that's, mm-hmm. that's there, um, but there's some more specialisation that's going on with that role. So, yeah, it's still, okay. it's still an important role, just not as, as highfalutin as it was back in 95 when, you know, you were a proceduralist running around the place doing things. So, mm. yeah. So it's a great role. Um, the other specialist role that people consider these days is a paramedic practitioner. And so um, that's not necessarily the, the high acuity stuff. It, it delves more into the uh, chronic illness, chronic uh, condition stuff, mm. and gives you a whole different range of skills that are probably really applicable around the world. So, yes, yeah, so there's right. a couple of different pathways that people can choose these days. So, right. Yeah. So what is a typical day in the life of uh, Ricky Smythe or, or a critical care paramedic look like? Yeah, well, I mean, um, uh, there, there's still uh, the opportunities to work as a single officer on what they call a pod, like an intensive care or a critical care pod, um, their role will look totally different to mine. So, you know, I've had the opportunity to work as a single officer, you know, responder uh, on a pod for around about eight to 10 years or so. Okay. Um, as I approach the last, you know, chapter of uh, my career, um, I'm really happy to be on a truck with a partner, you know, mentoring students uh, and being really busy. So there's two different types of things going on there. Um, for the single officer on a pod, um, they'll effectively um, be, you know, listening and looking out for jobs uh, within the you know, area or region to see whether they may be required so that they can actually self-respond by uh, contacting comms and say they've picked something up from the ah. details that they've seen. Um, or they will they will await to be summoned to, you know, to go to the higher acuity sorts of um, jobs that may sound like they need a CCP. Right, um, because we run we run with like a um, a uh, an AMPDS two tiered system that that determines that if the questions are answered a certain way by the bystanders, it'll dictate what's required at the job, and whether a CCP may be required. Yeah, um, the opposite of that is myself on a truck that goes to everything and anything, and so um, I'm in the position to be in that I'll go to potentially lots of non acute or can, you know, possibly you know, um, low acuity jobs, mm. but that could change with me being responded as a CCP to high acuity work. So um, what would the Dalai Lama say? The Dalai Lama would say that I'm just a monk, you know, I'm just doing my thing, just being a humble sort of old servant doing, doing my bit. That's how I see myself now is, is just I really enjoy, you know, tutoring, mentoring, sharing my knowledge, working with a partner, having a good laugh during the day, helping people um, and going whichever way they want me to go. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's how it is for me towards the end of my career. Right. Uh, still going to high acuity work uh, here and there, but ne- not necessarily uh, on the platform that I'm the guy that you need to send. Mm. So, yeah. Well, you've got the right haircut for it, mate. <laughs> uh. I do. I do. Can you uh, just detail some of those cases, some of those things that uh, do fit into um, 
the the high acuity. Yeah, work. so so uh, high acuity work will generally be um, someone that sounds like they have um, uh, significant mechanisms of injury that may require um, some support. Um, someone that is is definitely um, behind the eight ball. So, for instance, cardiac arrests, uh, very sick chest pains. Um, you know, very sick shortness of breath cases, those sorts of things. Um, and uh, we now have a thing called the High Acuity Response Unit, or HARU, which are CCPs that have um, been had specialised training and support and, and a high-quality assurance that now essentially anaesthetise people. So they're, they're bringing basically the hospital to the trauma patient with another set of skills as well. Mm. So you have your CCP, then you have your HARU people as well. So... Um, you know, um, coming back from, you know, 88, 89 when I started, um, where you would just here's a set of keys and go out and do some stuff, to now where you get lots of support, mentoring uh, around the place. It's, it's a transformation that's mm. it's quite crazy. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, I could spend my day um, going from, you know, falls in the home, uh, nursing home type cases. Uh, a lot of our uh, workload relates to, you know, drugs, alcohol, uh, mental health, um, and you know, throw in some you know, chronic health issues, your, your blood pressure issues, strokes, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, to, for instance, going to, you know, uh, traumatic cardiac arrest, um, cardiac arrests, um, you know, uh, acute pulmonary edema, so significant cardiac related shortness of breath. So, and of course, all the COVID stuff. So um, it's it's an amazing uh, job because of the diversity that you mm. never know um, what you're up to mm. on any given day. Um, one of the best parts about being on a truck is just we, we get lots of students that come through the universities and I love it. Like I love, you know, they come to us with a lot of academic knowledge. Yep. They come to us with a lot of um, intelligence, yeah, but very little um, real-world experience. And so, you know, the saying goes that, you know, knowledge without experience is just information. So they come, you know, loaded full of, you know, questions and, and uh, understanding, you know, pathophysiology. Yeah. But, you know, how do I get this person down from the third floor or how do I get this person off the toilet or how do I do X, Y, and Z? Mm. That's where the experiential practical experience comes from because it's mm. an experiential job. You know, medicine's like that, that you may have your seven-year degree, but you've seen a lot of patients and you've had a lot of chance to practice what you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so it's good. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff you can't actually learn in a textbook. Definitely so. Oh, look, you know, we could, Ben, we could both go onto Google and and all sorts of sites to be able to learn stuff, mm. but um, it's, it's actually that practical opportunity to be able to do that safely mm. where someone gives you enough rope to be able to not hang yourself but keep you safe. And keep other people safe, which is the um, the important part. So, so we create, or certainly I do, a really safe uh, learning experience for people because you learn best when you're safe, mm. when you feel comfortable, uh, and we make it fun and we make it enjoyable. And uh, there are lots of challenges, and they're expected to raise their standard and their performance to a level that you know both my, my partner and I are happy with. Mm. Um, because they're representing us, you know, and that's that's why we set such a high standard. Yeah. Mm. Just to finish off on 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 the, the the role now, is there 
do you have further scope and are you just going to this situation because you you know more or got more experience but are you allowed to play with more things and uh, and deliver yeah uh, other you know drugs and things like that is it, how does it differ from you know some of the other the advanced care paramedic or yeah so so a couple we would carry um, uh, some advanced airway uh, um, equipment Okay. And skills and training that go with that. We also carry a number of different drugs that the you know, advanced care paramedics don't carry. Um, but really, we 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 aren't as um, grandiose, you know, compared to them as as it used to be. Mm. And that's a good thing because it means that the general public can mm. can can get the best level of care from whoever attends the scene. Wow. You know, um, I think the challenge now for uh, people, Ben, is that. Um, so we used to say that it takes about five years um, to be able to see uh, all the things that you may see as a paramedic, to be able to gain that experience and those sorts of things. I really feel for our graduates who come with you know three years of university study, mm. um, a lot of information and knowledge, um, but maybe what eighteen weeks of practical experience, mm. uh, and they're expected to be. Uh, a qualified paramedic, so um, it's not un- unusual for them to be really uh, anxious mm. about what they're um, doing on a daily basis because they just simply haven't seen enough cases. Like mm. under our old um, diploma system, when the QRS became one and you did a three-year diploma, you had a supervisor for three years. Yeah. You saw maybe you know three thousand cases in that time. Mm. So you were pretty well experienced by the time you qualified. Mm. Now it may be, you know, at the most eighteen weeks of clinical placement, which is maybe three hundred to five hundred patients. Mm. Um, so it's really quite limited to to what it used to be. Um, and you know, there, there's not really uh, a lot of considerations to who's on that truck. Mm. You know, it's as long as you're qualified. That's that's uh, the, the scope of the system. So, right. you know, if you've just graduated and, and you're now qualified, I might have just graduated and been qualified, and so the both of us are working together on a truck with wow. limited experience, as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, when a student comes onto our truck, for instance, at the moment uh, at my station, um, there's 64 years of uh, Amwitz experience on the truck because my partner and I have both done 32 years. Do you know what I mean? So, there's not a lot that we haven't seen. There may be something that, you know, that we've um, not seen, mm. but mostly we've we've been somewhere, done something, and you know, touched something that we're all used to, mm. and uh, it's a solid foundation for students to be able to learn from. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, with the the, the students that uh, come through the, the Australian Paramedical College, I know that's one thing we're we're big on giving them that early experience, yeah. even if it's just volunteering, yeah, St John's or you know event medic sort of work. Yes. But also obviously going through the, the diploma or the cert for having the workshops, having to do placement, all that sort of stuff before they potentially then um, get entry into university. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people choose this option because they, they don't feel like they have the option of going into university. Right. But it actually gives them somewhat of an advantage, we feel, yeah. um, to, to getting hands on sooner and, and getting that experience sooner um is there is there any other things that you'd recommend how how students can actually 
get that experience. Um, yeah, well, I guess like we were saying, Ben, we could both learn a lot from YouTube and yeah. uh, and Google and all those sorts of things and, and, and a three-year degree. Um, those are all kind of like the technical things that people can learn yep. and, and master themselves because mm. um, it's the world of adult, adult learning, right? But it's the non-technical things that, that actually make or attract you know, a good paramedic or a good practitioner. And, and all those non-technical things are all, you know, um, communication, yeah. um, self-understanding, self-awareness, um, understanding that the world's a very complex place and, and um, you know, non-judgment is probably a, a very good strategy because you don't know the path that someone else has been down. Mm. And so uh, I frequently recommend, you know, being involved in disability services, um, any sort of alcohol, drug, you know, mental health facility, you know, like Miracor, those sorts of places that may be interested in, in having you volunteer um, because uh, I think it just makes you a better person because you can relate to people, you know. Um, a lot of um, our students, and this is, this is very much a generalisation, especially from university, come from a um, middle to high income background. So they've... they've They've done okay in life. They come from loving families and those sorts of things. But um, because a lot of our work is mental health, drugs and alcohol or domestic violence, all mm. those sorts of tricky things, um, you know, you don't have a lot of experience with those things if you, if you come from a safe, loving, kind yeah. home. Yeah. And so that can be quite confronting to um, experience those things and to be challenged both physically, verbally, and you know, mentally. Mm. Um, so I think that having that depth of character is a really you know, a good selling point of yourself you know, for, for this sort of role, for the paramedic role. Because we see, you know, we see these, I don't watch the Ammon shows, but I imagine you know, TV shows and dra they dramatise it really well to make it look like every job's something significant yeah. and every moment is life-threatening and all these sorts of things. But, you know, um, that ain't the way that your normal day goes. And, you know, you don't just save a life by being a proceduralist, having a drug that you give or, you know, a piece of equipment that saves a life. Mm. Sometimes you save a life by, you know, being present to someone, hearing their story being kind to them and getting them to the right resources and, and support networks if you can, uh, that's still saving a life. Yep. Um, you just don't see it the same way that, you know, a, um, a drug might work, I suppose, mm. was in instantaneously. So, yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, from what I'm hearing, you're saying that really to develop your character, which is A1, the quality that, you know, uh, is, is what determines a, a great, paramedic but it's uh -huh. really just exposure to people in the community different walks of life yes having building empathy yes yeah, um, yeah and you can do that in many many ways yes they um I, i'm not involved in the selection process of recruitment of people mm. what i know second or third hand is that um for quite a while um, organizations were doing quite a psychological profile on people that wanted to become uh, a paramedic. Mm. And so they really weren't looking at whether you got sevens at university like as a high distinction. They were really looking at whether you were a good person, how you related to other people. It's like a big brother set. Watch, watching the way you engaged with other people and spoke with them. And they were, they were 
I suppose uh, their flags were if you were at either extreme of human behaviour. Mm. So you were the absolute, you know, extrovert, uh, maybe borderline psychotic or narcissistic, and, and it was all about beating your own chest and showing everyone how awesome you were. Or you were the extreme introvert, which was you found it very hard to talk to people, mm. um, lived inside your shell mm. and didn't say much. So, you know, um, Goldilocks for ambulance is, is that person that's able to speak to people. You can connect with people at the high income, you know, area of life where you you are there of service to them. Mm. You connect with people who um, are in darkness, you know, whose lives has totally disconnected them from everyone, but you relate to them as a human being. And so you've got to have that, um, you know, skill set, um, that armament to be able to relate to all sorts of people in all sorts of situations. And no matter which way it goes, you'll have something or some way to go to help them with that. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's really good. I, I love that insight, Ricky. Thank that's, you. That's awesome. Mate, we, you alluded to a specific moment in your career, or, or two actually, in, uh, in the, the, our pre-interview mm. questions. Um, are they kind of moments that you now, we were talking about, you know, your um, off-duty breach delivery and also resuscitation. Um, can can we can you tell us a story of, of those and how those impacted you? If that's if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, no, of course. So, so um, the the breach delivery uh, case um, and subsequent resuscitation of of twin number two um, was for that. We live quite remotely. Uh, I mean, not so remotely. It's it's the Gold Coast hinterland, so it's about half an hour, 40 minutes from town. So it's not as remote as Longreach mm. or something like that, mm. but far enough away that um, help takes a little while to get there. Um, and our uh, neighbour at the time um, had five children. Um, they had uh, wanted to have a girl. They had five boys and wanted to have a girl. So she became pregnant again and somehow uh, was able to encourage um, a home birth with a midwife mm. Uh, at a remote location with twins, where even then the midwife would be another forty minutes away. So and and multi multi para multi gravid. So you know there's there's a potential there for that pregnancy or delivery to go quite quickly. Um, so there are a couple of flags there that, that I would suspect you know, um, a wise midwife would stay right away from it because of all the challenges that it might bring. Nevertheless. Um, you know, midnight rolls along. Um, my wife and I are at home. Um, get a phone call from her partner to say that she's in labour. So uh, we took off up the road to to their place. Um, baby number one um, we, was delivered. So uh, quite normal cephalic delivery, which was quite um, great. Um, Just catching right. Really. <laughs> got my wife to ring up to organise an ambulance to be coming to us. Um, aware that she was having twins. Um, and um, baby number one was another boy. So now they've got six boys. Oh. Um, baby number two, who ended up being breech, uh, was a girl. And, um, you know, both my wife and I would, would, would speak through the pressure that we felt, you know, in those moments. Um, a, because uh, we live in a small community, people know us, you know, uh, when we first moved there, because ambulance services were quite 
uh, far away, we would often get a phone call to come around or pop around right. and, and help out where we could. Yeah. Um, and the uh, pressure situation, which was the, the delayed um, birth because of the breech delivery, um, all that was going through my mind was was the potential for you know loss of oxygen, brain damage, uh, potential death, you know, those sorts of things. And so um, did a, a maneuver called the Love Sets maneuver, where um, the baby is rotated to be able to deliver uh, the anterior shoulder first, otherwise it won't deliver. Okay. Uh, that worked. At, that worked really really well. Um, but uh, you know, baby number two came out quite flat, um, so very low APGAR score, um, essentially apneic, uh, and required sort of mouth to mouth and some CPR done prior to um, the animals getting there. My wife tells the story of um, the uh, ambulance officer arriving, who's who's a friend of ours, who's a neighbour type thing, and. He tells the story of when he first got the phone call about what was going on, you know, he was shitting himself. Mm. And so he was quite happy to walk in and see babies had been delivered and 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 know that the situation had gone well, you know. So um, a lot of pressure on people. And um, my wife got a lover, you know, apart from calling the ambulance, uh, it was also a time when uh, CareFlot used to work uh, okay. up in our area quite often. And so they arranged... Um, for an obstetrician to come along, yep, um, and a nurse. And so they were picked up from the hospital, brought up to our local area um, and facilitated the transport of mum and baby back to uh, care, back at the Gold Coast Hospital. So I can just strongly remember, you know, Kim and I um, getting home after this experience and, you know, just in the moment after it's all done, just in darkness, just crying our eyes out, just you know, overwhelmed by what we'd... Um, been involved with and also not knowing how um, things would turn out mm. because, you know, as I was speaking to a student the other day, um, you know, paramedics by their very nature are really good, like any emergency service person, of hiding what's going on. Yeah. So we have this affront of being you know, in control. It's all good. We've done this before. You know, um, we mirror or try to mirror calm, mm. you know, um, that's both a strength. Um, so for the people in our care who are watching our care, mm. they go, oh, this is awesome, they're amazing, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But you don't see what's going inside the head of that person. Um, and so it's actually kryptonite as well. So it's a strength to have this ability to be able to take on um, anxiety-producing, stressful moments, be very calm in those situations. Yeah. But under the guise of what's going on in your head, you're probably pooping yourself as to what's happening, but you elude uh, a sense of confidence for people to try and bring things down a little bit, you know. So it's 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 definitely kryptonite because what it means is that, um, well, two things. You know, as a paramedic, you can feel like bad things only happen to other people, mm -hmm. not to us. Um, and number two is because you, you spend so much time being strong, um, it can disconnect you from when you are in trouble, when you do get in the abyss. Um, because I can recall a, a case where um, two firemen died. So we went to a, um, a uh, business that was on fire. Uh, we arrived with the fire brigade. This is quite a long time ago, so back in around 1990, 91. Um, arrived with the fire service. It was a um, structural fire that involved a motorcycle business, um, because, you know, motorbikes in, in the, uh, it was an old Queenslander house that they were running the business from. Yeah. 
Um, so I had like, you know, 80 motorbikes inside the business all next to each other, all chained up. It was downstairs was, um, was, uh, the workshop. So full of oils and fuels and all sorts of things. So you can imagine that the black smoke that was generated by this fire, uh, was terrible. It was nighttime. So, you know, visibility was down. Um, so we sat there as we do with, you know, fire standbys, you know, watching to see what was happening and make sure that if anyone got hurt, that we were there for that. And over that um, probably about 40-minute, 45-minute period, you could see the level of the fire officers um, become elevated. And so they realised at some point that uh, two of their friends or two of their colleagues were missing. And so, um, you know, from an emergency service point of view, um, we're used to seeing um, uh, chaos and anxiety and stress in the people who we go to help, we're not used to seeing it in the people who are there to deliver help. And so watching that level of anxiety and um, fear um, build you know, for the fire officers uh, was quite terrible. So my partner and I were down there to, to witness that. And then uh, they eventually found them, uh, both in cardiac arrest or, or you know, possibly deceased. Um, help them to get them out of the building. They, were, they weren't too far inside the building. Um, but, you know, once again, it's, it's you know, that difficult um, area, Ben, where, you know, you're used, to th- you're used to things happening to other people, not mm. to us. Mm. And so, you know, the death of an emergency service worker or, or potential harm to them um, makes, you know, paramedics, fire officers and, and police officers um, connect with, you know, the, the delusion that we're not in control mm. and that nothing will ever happen to us. And like Superman with the undies on the outside, we're, we're kind of like bulletproof, but, you know, that's not the case. And so, um, you know, those sorts of moments really reinforce how, um, you know, if you're not connected to that vulnerability that we all are, that we could all walk out of here today and be in trouble, um, you can pretend that you're okay. And... Mm. Yeah, that's diabolical from a psychological point of view, which is is you know you're not Superman or Superwoman. Stuff will happen, and you'll have to deal with it or not deal with it, and then be alone. Mm. You know, which is which is trouble, which is where the disconnect is is a problem. Yeah, let's talk a bit about about that now. And you, your role as a peer support officer, which I understand you've had for twenty odd years. Yeah. Um, and this is this is really quite. Uh, a significant topic for for people thinking of you know, going into into this career. Yes, on the pathway. Um, what what does that what does that role look like for you? And is this as a program that's run by the the service? Yeah. Um, and I also want to talk a little bit about the is there a is there any stigma or is it breaking is that stigma breaking between people you know on the force that we're, oh, we're in control we yes, don't break yes um and it, it strikes me that there there may be somewhat of a um hesitation to to say i need i need support i need yeah. help and how's that changed throughout the years that you've been operating oh, in this role ma- well it's amazing because like <clears throat> if you can imagine um uh, back in the older days when you had the tradespeople you know, join the service, mm. uh, men were men. Men did all the doing jobs, so you wouldn't have found women, you know, within uh, mm. the armor service, police force, or fire service. Um, yeah, there were no girls when I first started. Um, 
And so it was very blokey. It was very, you know, if you can't handle the fire, get out of the kitchen. Mm. And there were very few options to be able to put your head out to say that I'm having a difficult time. Um, you know, you can imagine, Ben, that um, there were psychological services and support provided uh, internationally, you know, with, with emergency service uh, organisations. And that trickled into um, our service through one of the senior uh, ex-QATB uh, administrative guys that, that that brought that into the service. Um, we were fortunate because our um, commissioner at the time uh, was a doctor. He was in charge of uh, previously Ipswich Emergency Department. Mm. So he's very uh, sensitive to those sorts of issues and um, helped you know, bring it bring it into the service, which was amazing. Mm. What the service was surprised by, so they created a budget um, to provide this service. Um, I believe that in the first year, the demand was like three times the what they had expected, Definitely you know. Right. And what really hasn't changed in that time was um, that we think that, um, you know, the psychological or potential psychological traumas and difficulties that, that people experience through this job um, are the things that they see, smell and do on a daily basis. So the potential to deal with death um, challenge, confrontation. Yeah, those things are, are very real, and to be with people at, on the on the worst day of their lives, it's, it is truly there. Mm. But what hasn't changed is the demand for um, you know, psychological support from those services. Actually, it relates to the organisational trauma, and so you know, um, I remember you know coming to the ambulance service thinking. You know, it's a caring organisation. They're going to be lovely people. They want to help people. All that sort of nice, fluffy stuff. And you know what? People come from all sorts of different backgrounds, do it for all sorts of different reasons. So fluffy it wasn't. And you'll meet some people who are amazing and some people who are awful. And it doesn't mean that they can't be good ambulance officers or paramedics. It's just that there are different, you know, um, people that bring different things to the table. In some ways, all want to help. But, um, you know, organisational trauma um, or post-traumatic injury can come from, you know, something that you see as part of the job. But if, um, if, if your leader or supervisor or the organisation doesn't support you the way you are expecting it to be supported, that causes its own trauma. So you've already seen something, done something that was pretty yucky. If you're on the receiving end of something bad afterwards, if, for instance, the organisation treats mistakes or problems as being personal so it's a blaming organization that says the reason why they went wrong is because you're bad it's mm -hmm. not because of any other systemic issue mm -hmm. um, that's the trauma that people can experience at times and you know that's that's not a part of just the Queensland Ambulance Service that's part of any organization you'll 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 meet ex-police officers or fire officers or nurses or doctors that you know may have been on the receiving end of something mm -hmm. and how they were treated Will depend on how they do after that event, yeah. you know. Yeah, which is you know, I'm reading a current book called um, Human Factors in Paramedicine. Uh, it involves ergonomics as well, and you know they're very much um, the ideology that when things go wrong, is to look at a system thing, not just an individual as to what's happened. You know, the the slices of the Swiss cheese may have all lined up for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, that's where probably the gold is. So, yeah. So system first. 
it's definitely system first. It's, it's when something goes wrong, it's the opportunity to, to say, well, what is going on? Mm. Where does everything lie? What do we need to be looking at? And you, know, you, you can look at that from a NAPLAN perspective, even with teaching, Ben, which is, you know, NAPLAN, my darling wife's a teacher, NAPLAN was designed so that a teacher would know where the kids fit. It wasn't designed as being able to assess teachers or assess schools yeah. or whatever else. It was, yeah. a, it was a tool for teachers to be able to know where, where kids are and what needs to change to be able to help teach and educate. But it becomes politicised. It becomes a tool to be able to use to say good or bad. Mm. In the same way, you know, organisations can create tools that they use to try and capture what's going on. And you know, rather than seeing it as well, this is where we need to spend our energy on our education or training with our people. Mm. They can see it as a tool to capture people, you know, for doing the wrong thing or being bad with the way they might do their paperwork or mm. something. You know. Mm. Um, but I suppose it, it, you know, it gets us back to that whole um, peer support network thing, which was originally they thought it was about um, things you see. And so there was at, at the start it was all about having these, um, you know, uh, CISD, you know, bringing everyone into a room after a bad thing happened. Everyone has a piece of the puzzle. You know, we all sit around and hold hands and, and share what's going on, which is great if you like that sort of thing. If you don't like it, it was very bad for people to re-experience, you know, the trauma of going through a job. Yeah. And it's come full circle to being – well, not full circle. It's, it's gone down that path now of um, that, that model was okay at the start, but now we deal with individuals. Um, and what's lovely is that – you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the chippy, you know, you, if you can't handle a fire, get out of the kitchen thing, that's really morphed into something that, which is modern age. So, you know, when I speak to my um, ambulance psychologist um, friends and counsellors, they would say that the new age paramedic actually comes and, and pays them a visit, not when they're broken, but just for like a welfare check, just to sort right. of say, how do you think I'm travelling? This is what's going on for me. What do you think? As opposed to, I'm over in the corner straight at the start of the session, sucking my thumb, mm. and you know, wanting to hurt myself. And so that's a lovely transition. Um, so it's about well-being, right? Mm. Um, peer support role, fabulous role. Did it for a long time. It was a support and broker role, which means that you try and have a diverse. You know, range of ambulance officers or paramedics that did it, mm. because you know Ben might like Ricky. But Jose doesn't like Ricky, so who else can he go and see if he's having some challenges? Mm. The beauty of it is is that you know in coming to see another paramedic or communications officer or, say, for instance, a leader, that they really know. There's a lot of unspoken stuff that we yeah. both know what's going on. You know, so that's a, that's a beautiful thing. But the kicker is is that uh, it's a support and broker situation. So um, I'm here to... Uh, acknowledge, understand, you know, listen to uh, what you're experiencing and going through. But my job is to actually um, broker you off to a counsellor because right. we're not the psychological professionals. We can't fix things and do things like that. Mm. Um, they're the people that you know, they need to be in touch with. Um, so it's a skill that a peer support officer has to learn mm which is to understand that support broker, mm. you know, you're not everything for everybody. Mm. And sometimes, you know, you're not in a good place to be able to listen to um, other people's experiences because, you know, my experience of that 20-year-old was that um, 
I had some breaks uh, amongst that 20 odd years because um, you're double dipping. And so because I have my own experiences with things I see, mm. and then I listen to your story about what you've just seen and done, I can actually imagine what that's like to have gone to that mm. job. And so I'm not just absorbing my own working week stuff. On my days off, I'm listening to other stories about what's going on with other people's stuff. And it's, mm. it's loading you up. So your bucket can become quite full, um, you know, caring for people. So as part of that role, you would generally once a month uh, meet with a counsellor, either as a group or individually, uh, just to offload whatever's going on or mm. just to make sure you're okay. Yeah. Because we're not always very good at knowing where we are in the forest. Mm. Yeah. But it sounds like the the service as a whole in the industry is sort of maturing yeah. in that way that, as you said, when you were first involved, it was kind of... Very much so. Like, um, I think, uh, we'll give us some experience. Like, you know, I've probably got around 800 hours of sick leave up my sleeve after having a long career. So, you know, theoretically, I could have about three months off and still be paid during that time, you know. Um, now, back when I first started, if I had shown that I was vulnerable or weak or a job affected me, mm. um, other people back then might have thought, oh, maybe you should be doing the job or maybe you should leave or do something else who's not hard enough for the job, et cetera, mm. you know. Mm. Um, when I think about some recent cases where, um, you know, I did a traumatic arrest of an 80-year-old um, who had accidentally gone through his arm with an angle grinder and had, you know, like bled out in front of his wife. Um, and my partner responded to that. There was a lot going on um, at the scene, both with family members, with uh, bystanders that were there, um, as well as trying to facilitate the resuscitation. Um, and so after that job, I was baked, I was cooked. Like my mind, my cognitively my bandwidth had narrowed to the point where I just spent, you know, the hour doing the job. I'd then spent some time um, having to, you know, report right the event. So that cause mm. it's going to go to the coroner. So, mm. so there are medical legal issues with, with what happens as well. Now it was halfway through my shift. I knew that being baked halfway through your shift is not a good thing. Right. Um, and I'm lucky enough to, to have that sick leave up my sleeve and the, people that supervisor lead me, you know, when I rang them up to say, look, this is where I'm, where I'm at, I need to just check out. I need to go home after this to get my head right because if I don't, um, I might make a drug error or yeah. calculation wrong. Yeah. I might, you know, I might go from the, you know, traumatic, you know, cardiac arrest to someone that, I don't know, has um, a paper cut to their finger that expects me to turn up, you know, with bells and whistles on and happy and smiley and 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 being sorry that we've taken an hour or so to get there. And, you know, they want first-rate service too. Yeah. They wouldn't have a clue what I've been to prior to that. Mm. Now, I could turn up and not be at my best, be a little bit flat, um, you know, not look really good on my face. Like, I'm pretty bad at having a bit of a poker face. So, you know, a little bit pissed off or cheesed off at what I'm trying to process and stuff like yeah. that. And I might say something or do something that gets me, you know, a complaint or in trouble and, and, and upset someone. So mm. it's much better for me to tap out mm. um, than to get it wrong 
you know, in the afternoon because yeah. that could that that could have, you know, life sake saving uh, or life you know questioning issues for your patients, you know, afterwards or your peers. So if that all goes bad, mm. so knowing yourself is probably a good thing. Yeah. So Ricky, how does somebody know if they're suited to the role of a paramedic? Mm, that's a really good question because, you know, you only know through doing right, and so you can have this picture in your head and watch some shows on telly that say this is what the job is. But until you feel the real-world experience of what it's like, um, you won't know. And so so, some of our um, university, you know, clinical placement students, Ben, um, most of them come to us after having done a whole year of ambulance, you know, their degree. So they don't get to see what happens on a daily basis until after having done their course for a year. Now, you know, most paramedics would say, gee, it'd be great if early on that degree they could get a, a ride-along to sort of see whether it's for them or not so they don't waste a whole year doing something. Having said that, though, um, nothing's a waste. So even if you've done a year of paramedics and, and realise it's not for you, it still takes you somewhere. It's still, you know, wherever it might be. But there will be some people that walk away after their first clinical placement going, Nah, I can't do this. Like my wife, you know, who's a teacher, said that, you know, with her cohort of primary school teachers, there are about 350 that started the cohort. After their first placement at a school, they lost about 90 of them. 90 people walked away going, nah, I'm not going to spend all this time becoming a teacher because it's really hard work and it really is taxing and I don't have the skill, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, so so you reflect on that. So, Mm. yeah. So, Ricky, I want to talk about now uh, your greatest thrill about doing what you do, perhaps why you do what you do mm. and the fulfilment and the reward you get out of it. Now, I did ask this already before our interview and I just want to allude to uh, or make reference to your answer um, and we'll talk about that. Now, you said primarily it's easing people's pain and suffering and the quote that you gave or the mantra that you that you gave was that no one dies in pain, no one dies afraid, and no one dies alone. Mm. That, that's that's deep stuff, but mm. really it's this whole it's this whole subject of death that you you really have to confront and 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 know and as a paramedic. And it's quite a responsibility, a privilege, but a responsibility to sometimes be there mm. in somebody's final moments. Can you talk a bit about how you go about that? Yeah. I think, um, you know, you asked before about the qualities of being a, a paramedic, what sort of skills or characteristics suit you. You know, if you don't like people, this is not the job for you. You know, if you, if you find yourself you know, being judgmental uh, or self-righteous about people's choices and, and paths in, in life, uh, it'll get you into trouble every time. You know, um, you know my – so I, I, I try to have a very jud- non-judgmental manner about me to try to understand people's journey. It, it's very hard um, in this time-critical, at, at times, job that we do um, – uh, but, you know, an example of, of that would be, you know, my brother, um, you know, he's like a professor of psychology 
um, at ANU, so one of Australia's top universities. Now, now when he went through um, a divorce, a separation and family breakdown and divorce, um, he ended up sleeping in his car for like 12 months, so he was homeless, you know. Now, if, if you were to speak with him during that dark, challenging time um, where there was no light, you know, for him to be able to see which way's out, um, there's no way you predict where he is, you know, 30-odd years since then, you know. Um, but what was important was, was as alone and as frightened and as um, disconnected as he was, was that people around him that kept him connected, you know, and, and that's one of the problems of modern day life for us, you know, especially on the Gold Coast, which is a quite a transient place, which is, you know, you're seeing a lot of family breakdown, you're seeing people uh, disconnected, from, so they have no support network, no, no one, which is why police and ambulance tend to be the go-to people for everything. And you sort of break down, mm. whether it's small or large, it's it's our terrain. Um, but, you know, in, in response to, you know, the mantra, Ben, I mean, it's about, you know, acknowledging that, you know, we're all just kind of um, trying to bring each other home. Um, all of us will have a moment in our lives when something bad happens and we hope that someone will be around us to be able to um, uh, you know, ease our, our being afraid, our being so scared, you know. Uh, it's it's what it is to be human. We're a social species, you know. We hope to be around each other, um, and through family breakdowns and and dysfunction, sometimes people have everyone in their lives has walked away. So I guess the mantra centres on the on the issue that um, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, my job's to be here for you mm. and to make sure you're not disconnected. You know, um, now whether that involves you know, a resuscitation or whether that involves you thinking about making your pain stop because you're ready to leave the, the world, you know, because the pain's too much. Uh, my job's to make sure you know that there is light and that, you know, just, despite how hard this might be, no one's walking away or we're here, mm. you know, and whatever it takes. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. Mm. Uh, often for paramedics, you know, um, we don't spend a lot of time with people who, you know, die in front of us that, that we're communicating with one moment mm. and that um, ask the question, you know, will I live or die or what's going to happen to me? It's, yeah. it's very rare to experience in that. Mm. So a lot of the work we do is, is to be with uh, bystanders, family members, friends who are going through that chaos, chaotic moment to make sure that they know that everything possible that can be done is being done. Um, and, you know, we're, we're treating their loved person as if they're one of ours as well, that, that nothing's flipping about it. We're, mm. we're engaged in this. So um, I think with experience, um, you know, it's, it's not something that I'm sure that they try and teach it in, with medicine or with paramedicine at university now, but you can't know what it's going to be like until you're actually speaking with someone yeah. or working through that, you know. And and I guess it's understanding that, you know, there are, there are no right answers. Like sometimes when people, you know, tell me 
why they're thinking about killing themselves or why, you know, they're afraid, you know, sometimes the right response is, well, life is fucked. Like, mm. like really, you know, if you, if, you know, I was going through what you would, I would, under, I actually understand where you're at, but my job is to try and find some solutions to this sort of stuff, you know, in relation to self-harm and those sorts of things. As far as grief and loss, it's, it's to be a conduit to, to make sure that people know that we're here, we're, we're the foundation. So, you know, when, when their loved one dies uh, at home or in difficult circumstances, we'll, we'll be doing all of the hard things. There's nothing they need to do, say, or act on. We'll look after all that. We've, we've got this. Um, we need to free up to be able to help you with those next few decisions or phone calls, you know, and so more than happy to make phone calls for people. Because sometimes, um, you know, when someone dies and, you know, you're making that phone call to a brother or sister, as the messenger, that can leave a bit of a stain for people. Mm. So it's it's a lot better sometimes if it comes from a third person or a second person that's not family mm. to break bloody shocking news to people, you know. Uh, and everyone will react differently. You know, it's, when I left the Navy... Uh, the superannuation insurance guy said to the group, uh, okay, I'm going to just dismiss that myth here, okay? It's not if you die, it's when you die. <laughs> so no one's getting out of here alive. But as human beings, we're constantly no, never thinking about that. We're yeah. hoping it never happens, but yeah. we all kind of know it will. Yeah. So no one's really prepared for that moment, you know? Yeah. So it's it's tough. And, you know, my experience would say that it doesn't matter whether it's sudden uh, or whether it's, you know, a 99 or 102-year-old, you know, great-grandmother, mm. grief is grief. Mm. You know, even if you know it's coming, it's going to be upsetting mm. yeah, and hard. It's funny, isn't it? It's the, the, that role that you're in to, to, first of all, preserve life. Yes. Right, and keep somebody alive, but, but also be there because when they're losing life, you yes. know, and to – from what you're saying, it's that making a connection with people, yes. uh, understanding, yes, empathising with that, not having necessarily the right answers or the yeah. Well, you know, um, it's difficult because uh, you know people can think that we, as human beings, you have control over everything, or you don't. Mm. <laughs> you can do your best to fix some situations, but there are certainly some situations you can't fix. But you can make sure that people don't suffer during those moments as best you can. And um, that they have the support, so that so that you know they're not, you know, um, experiencing experiencing a terrible death, you know. And pain relief is one of those things that will help with that sort of stuff. Amazing. So it's easier. Yeah. So Ricky, what would you say would be one of the best qualities, skills, of a great paramedic? I think um, just a love for human beings, <laughs> Ben. <laughs> Because you know what, we're, sometimes we're really hard to love. Like we we can't be you know saints. We're going to have all going to have our flaws and imperfections. Yeah. But to be open to, you know, the lived experience is really hard. Everyone's doing their best to get through it. Yes, some people are making really bad choices in their lives. Yeah. But no one wants to be making choices that hurt themselves or others. But no. that, but they are by their very nature possibly making those choices. Um, so being okay with trying to do your best to fix whatever you can fix and, mm. and move through things, you know. Um, I, I got a 
you know, I got through 10 years of being in the Navy without a tattoo, which is remarkable because everyone's bloody inked up, you know. Yeah. And um, both my kids have got tattoos, you know, and uh, they've got quite a few. And uh, much to my wife's and my difficulty when they're going through it. Um, but, yeah, no, I am getting a tattoo, you know, and, um, uh, you know, people get quotes, you know, that mean something to them, yeah. And hopefully it stays, it's not just a fleeting quote that you get. Yeah. So the one that I have uh, on my right arm, you know, is like um, just a reminder, which is which is one day's burden is enough for one day. So whenever I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have like a 40-minute to one-hour drive home. So I definitely try and keep the slate clean, mm. um, put the day to an end, and not spend an hour thinking about what I've just been through, mm. but get myself into a good place so that when I'm home, you know, I'm present for for Kim mm. uh, or whoever's there. Mm. Um, and the other tattoo is like, um, is you know, it's a biblical quote too, mm. which is uh, you know, here am I send me. So it just relates to the fact that it's just a reminder that everyone calls you for their own reason. So even though. After 32 years, you think you've seen the worst and the easiest and the simplest and that sort of stuff. Everyone calls you for their own crisis, you know, and whilst it might not seem like a crisis, you know, in my scale of crises, mm. it's not the two firemen who have died or whatever else. Mm. It's their own little crisis. And so to try and have a clean slate when you walk in so there's no baggage that stops you from connecting or being with people, you know, mm. that's a challenge, Ben, because mm. <laughs> it's a very diverse world. Yeah. But... You know, um, you know what, what a gift to be part of something where people want you to come and help them. You know, that's mm. that's a real privilege. You know, mm. because you know you'll see things and do things, and and people will invite you into their lives that 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 wouldn't you know, think twice of you walking down the street in a t-shirt or whatever yeah. else. Yeah. But now here they're sharing stuff with you that mm. you know is just extraordinary. Mm. And there's that sense, Ricky, too, that when you lighten somebody else's burden or you, you carry that, that somehow all your worries and uh, and burdens seem to lighten as well. Very, look, you know what? I frequently say if you don't walk away from your day you know, grateful or blessed with your life, if it doesn't involve crisis, domestic violence, mm. drugs, alcohol, all those sorts of things, you're doing okay. You know, so it's a, it is a privilege to witness what other people's lives are like and be able to walk away thinking, geez, I'm, I'm, I've made some good choices or I'm lucky or whatever it might be. But but also, you know, um, so you get this one shot, right? And so you want your life to be meaningful. Mm. And so, you know, this is a very meaningful, you know, job. And whether that's paramedic, whether that's nurse, whether it's doctor, whether it's, you know, paramedical college, first aid events, you're making a difference in someone's life, you know. I think I always thank the cleaners whenever I see them because they're bloody heroes, you know. And and some yeah. people think nothing of it, but no, Absolutely. you know what they say: if a doctor wasn't at the hospital, the place would shut down in a couple of hours. If a nurse wasn't at the hospital, it's shut down within an hour. If a cleaner wasn't at the hospital, it's shut down in tw- twenty-five minutes. So, oh, that's great. So you know, you need you need people doing all sorts of things. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, thirty-eight years of marriage. Yes. Many, if not all, would say that's a success. <laughs> if you're still sleeping in the same house and you've got kids. Yes. Um, and you've been 
in the Royal Australian Navy, you've you know obviously been many many or de- many decades in in uh, paramedicine. Mm. How do you do it? What's your secret? Marry a saint, I would say. Marry a saint. <laughs> saint Kim. They um, now nah, look, Kim. Um, you know, any, any relationship that's gone for a long time isn't a success-only journey. You've had moments where you've annoyed each other, where you might lose faith in someone or you know, question who they are or whatever, you know, by their choices. Um, so Kim Godlover has been through quite the roller coaster ride with me as a 50-year-old that joined the Navy that, that we met each other. We both, you know, um, love and adore each other. Like we both, you know, um, we, we're lucky because we just had like five weeks together at home, you know. Now, some couples approach retirement, you know, and, and don't survive because they haven't spent much time around each other and they don't really like each other that much. <laughs> so retirement <laughs> might make them split up. Yeah. Kim and I are really looking forward to just having every day with each other because we, we get along really well. We, we complement each other. Um, we're both understanding and forgiving and we're both looking in the same direction, you know. So um, we are very blessed. Um, we're very much looking forward to hopefully having some time together. Uh, you know, we have a wonderful uh, family. So the kids are great, grandkids, that sort of stuff. You know, we're, we're just incredibly lucky. Kim is a very um, understanding and forgiving person too. So, you know, like the peer support work, for instance, that, that took me away from my family. So I'm already doing work mm. and then someone rings to say they're not travelling well. Oh, Kim, is it okay if I go catch up with, you know, so-and-so? Kim's like, yeah, go and catch up with them. You know, they need you, stuff like that. So both Kim and the kids have both been understanding it, releasing me to help other people. Yeah. But, you know, at some point they should sort of say, well, stop doing that because we need, we, you know, we want you at home. We need you. We need the best of Ricky Smythe at mm. home. Mm. And at some point, I've got to say, you know what, I, I've done that. I need to move to this. Um, so that's been a good thing too, Ben, which is is knowing when to uh, pull the pin on something and knowing when uh, it's not working um, and seeing the signs, you know, that it's not working. Um, yeah, that's a really important thing. So I think, you know, with ambulance, um, you know, self-awareness is a really important thing is to, is to know – you know, it'd be very easy to be ego-driven, you know. Yeah. I'm awesome, you know, do all this sorts of work. Um, but you actually have to be really self-aware of how you fit in the system. Mm. Um, we work as a team, you know. The, the best jobs I've been to is where everyone on the team or everyone that's there is working together. There is no ego in the pursuit of helping, you know, a person or a number of people, those sorts of things. Some of the worst jobs I've seen have involved someone that's, you know, ego has has, has arrived and decisions that things are being said that just are toxic, you know, and it's bad for patient care, it's bad for team morale, it's 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 wicked, you know. There's a there's a great science about um, being incivil. Okay. And a consultant uh you know, a physician from Scotland, I think, is on is on uh, a TED talk where he talks about incivility and what it costs. And, and he said that, you know, if I'm incivil to you um, at a job, at a case, or whatever else, that reduces your your ability to think, your cognitive bandwidth 
by 50%. So your ability to be able to problem solve and work out what's going on and make decisions has just dropped by half. Now, that's dramatic, but here's the other problem is that if someone else is in the room witnessing that, okay, so you've already dropped someone else's problem-solving ability, which is bad, mm. but if someone else is in the room witnessing it, it drops, even though they're not the ones being attacked, yep. their cognitive bandwidth drops by 25%. So all of a sudden, just because someone's being rude, obnoxious, or wanting to be you know, in charge, mm. your ability to be able to problem-solve a situation just dies, you know. Wow. So um, it's really important to understand that as a leader, isn't it? Or I mean, anybody, yeah. but in a leadership position particularly. Yes, yes. So incivility can't be tolerated by, you know, um, by paramedics. Really, There's, we've we've moved towards, um, you know, aviation has become safer because they have checklists and and language mm. that helps them to avoid that autocratic narcissistic, I'm the captain of the aircraft thing. And there's a thing called CUS, C-U-S, which is, um, you know, when someone's doing something that's not okay, it's it's hierarchical. So you start with saying, hey, I'm concerned. Hey, I'm uncomfortable. Hey, this is a safety issue. Step away from the the patient, but, or whatever it might be, or step away from the controls. But you have to have some language, which is what we're we're working towards, is, is getting people better language and skills to be able to you know, work in teams. And navigate those potential conflicts. A couple of great books, you know, Peak Performance Under Pressure by Stephen Hearns, who's a consultant um, helicopter physician. Amazing book. Um, And there's Human Factors in Paramedicine. They all talk about soft skills, hard skills, and how to negotiate good work. Excellent. Should be able to find those by just Googling the titles. Yeah, Google Peak Performance Under Pressure or Human Factors in Paramedicine. Yeah. Yeah. They're, They're my last two reads. Fantastic. Being shared with people at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And while we're on advice, is there any other advice that you would give uh, to those starting out on the pathway or considering uh, becoming uh, a paramedic or working in the emergency services? Yeah, we you know um, the job itself tends to attract good people. And so people that want to help and care, that's a, that's a good starting point, you know. Um, not to give up, not to, you know, Life is going to have lots of obstacles and challenges and that sort of stuff. Mm. It's not what happens to you. It's the way you process what happens to you. It's, it's mm. the way you approach it. Um, so as we alluded to before with my friend whose you know, son now flies fighter jets, you can start off here, but it doesn't mean that you won't end up somewhere else if you've got the passion and the commitment and the drive to do it. You know, mm. um, Yeah, I think that's probably sums it up really well, mate. Mm. You know, be, be open to feedback. Um, the best... Um, student clinical placements that we have and we get a lot of students that come through are people that turn up that want to learn that are open to feedback um, that are passionate committed and you know keen to do a good job some of the occasionally bad experiences relate to people that turn up with a lot of ego they already think their cup's full because they know stuff and they're not open to feedback and they're not open to um being vulnerable or risky, you know, they they they, they want to get it right or show everyone how awesome they are, whereas none of us are that awesome that you can't learn from each other. So yeah, well said, <laughs> really well said. 
Now, Ricky, oh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you mate, yeah. and and to, to hear your perspective and your journey. It's been really good. Uh, now, as you know, this podcast is brought to you by Australian Paramedical College. The college did put out uh, the uh, news that we were having you in on yeah. the, the show Great. and uh, and asked asked their students whether um, they had any questions yeah. for you. So Great. if you don't mind, yeah. um, these are, well, let's call them quick fire questions. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, you know, keep them under 20 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, you know. Yeah, yeah gotcha. Um, so let's let's go through them. You may have already answered those, but yeah. if you could just uh, sum up the answer, that'd be wonderful. So what are your favorite things about being a paramedic? Uh, people I work with, they're, they're fantastic. I love it. My hashtag is I love the people I work with. I work with the best people. And we work as one. So there, there's my hashtag. Yeah. Awesome. If you want to follow Ricky on uh, on Instagram, <laughs> just search that hashtag and you'll probably, you'll probably come yeah, up. Yeah, that's right. What are your least favorite things about being a paramedic? Oh, um, conflict with people that I work with, you know, uh, or that may be leaders, but but uh, close-mindedness would be something that, that I'd least favor, yeah, is people that yeah, aren't open to discussion. Okay, I'm an older person looking to enter QAS or emergency services after uni. Mm. I'll be about 45, 46, and there's many uh, in this sort of category. Yeah. Um, when I finish, um, will they employ somebody? Yeah, absolutely. Like um, if you looked at biomed, which is is you know the medical you know, pathway for someone to become a doctor, mm. a lot of the people who do biomed now have done two or three other degrees or they've done something within the workforce and they've come to university then. And so absolutely at 45 or 50 or whatever, you know, there's all sorts of people that come and join us. Mm. It's a measure of the character, not their age. So, yeah, they're always looking for good people, Ben. Yeah, good one. Regardless of age. Okay. have you got? How have you gotten or have you gotten used to shift work? And if so, how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I assume you have. Because. I don't know if that's a 20-second question. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm lucky enough in the last portion of my career to be on a day-afternoon roster. So I don't tend to do nights at the moment because it's a transition to retirement thing, mm. yeah. Um, I did do six weeks uh, as a single officer on like the pod as a CCP okay. to cover a, a vacancy. Nearly killed me. That was about <laughs> a year ago. And... It's really hard. Like the older one gets, um, the harder it is to do because generally with ambulance now, from the minute you sign on to the minute you go home, it's busy. Mm. And so uh, it's the challenge of being a single responder too, Ben, is mm. that in a car we'll offload each other, we'll keep each other engaged, we'll keep each other talking throughout the shift, mm. we'll laugh, we'll cry, we'll do all sorts of things to try and get us through that 12 to 14 hours, whatever it takes to get through. When you're by yourself, you're in tr trouble at two in the morning yeah. where you're tired, where you're driving around, um, and there's no one to talk to. Right, right. Now, and this is perhaps uh, on a similar um, mm. uh, subject, uh, how do you keep a work good work-life balance? Yeah, so... Um, when you're raising a family too, you know, particularly. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, the uh, yeah. Look, I was quite young with a young family. So in the, in the early days, had lots of energy. 
as I get older, if I do a night shift, I have to sleep the day of the night shift. I sleep the day after the night shift and I sleep the day after that too. I'm just exhausted. And so, you know, age is an important thing. So if you do enter the service mm. at the age of like 45, as you were saying before, mm. or, or older, shift work is going to be tough. But, you know, uh, there are lots of opportunities now to, to work flexible work arrangements. So, um, you know, it might be a couple of years of shift work and then maybe a flexible work arrangement. Who knows? Um, sleep, sleep, exercise, rest, and have a loving, caring family. I think Ben's the mm. is the issue. Yeah. Okay. This is a great one, and this is one I'd be keen to hear ah. uh, from you. Uh, very evident from today in our discussion. How do you maintain your positivity and that positive outlook on life after so many years oh. in a challenging career? Yeah, I, I wish I had a checklist. You, you could do the do that. Mate, I just look. I just I really do love people. Um, I, I it fills my tank, you know. Um, whether it's helping them, whether it's listening to their stories, whether that's it's just sharing my life with them. Um, those are the things that keep me enriched. I read a lot of stuff, so you know. Um, I suppose you know, at fifteen, uh, there was a family breakdown in our our family, so um, did a lot of counselling and those sorts of things. So, you know, I believe I'm quite in touch with who I am as a human being mm. um, and what matters to me. And for me, it's, it's you know, those around me, mm. you know, so that's, that's the source of richness, mm. yeah, not stuff. Mm. And it strikes me that you've got uh, quite a spiritual uh, component to yourself that kind of gives value to what you do as a family man and as a uh, practitioner as well. Yeah, no, very much so. So... I would consider myself like a lay Buddhist, you know. Uh, it's not a religion. It's 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 a way of life, you mm. know. Uh, that keeps me connected to the things, you know, in my heart, really. Mm. Um, that's important to me. Kim's uh, Catholic, so she can gamble, drink, and just say sorry. Um, <laughs> and she's 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 amazing. So, you know, once again, we both bring something different to the table and yeah. both respect and, and love each other for that reason. Beautiful. Two more. What tips would you have for anyone looking to find work in your industry? Yeah, I think we started out with the idea that um, get involved in broad things, disability services, drug and alcohol mm. stuff, um, vulnerable people, homelessness, you know, volunteer to work with uh, Orange Sky, you know, who do a lot of the Sky homeless laundry. work. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're just, it'll make you a better person because you become a better listener mm. and understanding that everyone's got hard stuff going on. So I think that's that's the gist, yeah. That's great. And so that that sort of work being on your, you know, resume, and it, it's not entirely why you do it, but no. to, sh to demonstrate as well as develop your own yeah. character and, and ways. But it's just a great thing to, to show, right, um, yeah. that you have had the initiative to – to do these things. Well, make you a better person, Ben. Like, yeah. uh, you know, anytime you're exposed to someone else's challenges and stuff, you'll have a look at their life, you'll understand that better and you'll understand yourself better, you know, mm. so it's a good thing. Yeah. Okay. How to, now, this possibly you've answered this, but the final question, how to maintain a positive mental well-being as mm. a paramedic? Yeah, look, there are going to be there're going to be some dark moments. <laughs> Sometimes, some days there are lots of those dark moments. Some days there's not, you know. Um, paramedics always call me ambos. 
we're good storytellers. And so, you know, having the chance to work with different people all the time, um, share each other's lives, learn from each other's stories and laugh as much as we can um, and realise none of us are perfect. Like we all have our flaws and stuff going on. Um, that leads one to have a better life, I think, mate. You know, it's just being around good people and it, you know, our service is full of them. It's just we're so blessed, including the students, by the way. Like I always um, want to know their, their, their student story. So yeah. tell us about you. Tell us who's at home. Tell us all these things. What have you done? All that sort of stuff. Because they're part of the team, you know, for that six-week you know, six placement or more. Yeah. And often on their departure, I say to them, so the gift of, um, you know, this mentorship is it's for life. Like you've always got my number. You've always got my contact. Um, you reach out to me and tell me what's going on. If someone's giving you a hard time, let me know because I know most of the people in the service. Um, so is my partner. Um, so, you know, we're here now. We're a resource. So, yeah, you're not alone. Mm. Yeah. Mate, thank you so much again. <laughs> I think the quote on your shirt sums it all up, mate. It, it really cracker. does. Let's, let, yeah, 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 it's a cracker. In a world where you can be anything, yeah. be kind. Absolutely. Good work. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ta- mate. Awesome. Nice to see you. All the best. Thanks for listening to another episode of Changing Lives. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating, writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Did you know we're also on YouTube? Just search for Changing Lives Podcast and you can watch our episodes in full HD video. Yeah. A huge thanks to Australian Paramedical College for supporting this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about the exciting and diverse career opportunities in emergency healthcare in Australia and which one is right for you, head to apcollege.edu.au for more info and to get your free personalised healthcare career development plan. Special thanks also to our audio and visual engineer and editor, Jose Biotto. And as always, it's been a pleasure to bring you this episode. Until next time, don't stop changing lives. Thank you.